0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Voters will begin choosing presidential candidates tonight at the Iowa caucuses. It's the first in the country after months of debates, campaigning in small-town diners, and a campaign like we've never seen. NPR's political reporter, Scott Detrow, he's a former WITF reporter, spent a few weeks in Iowa, and he joined us on the phone just a few minutes ago. NPR, Scott Detrow, welcome to Smart Talk.
1: Thanks, Scott. It was good to be here.
0: You know, I almost slipped and said WITF's Scott Detrow, but uh, I have to get used to that. A woman, and this woman is from Iowa, was quoted in the Washington Post this morning saying she feels like she's being courted by several boyfriends all at the same time. Do most Iowans feel that way?
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. You know, like, especially as it gets closer and closer to uh, today, February 1st, the caucuses really take over everything in the state. You fly into Des Moines. You drive downtown, and every other billboard is political. Every single ad on television is political. And especially uh, you know, in the Des Moines area, it feels like you can't go to a diner without having boom mics there at a certain point in the process. So it just really takes over the whole state, which is interesting because if you look at the number of people who are actually going to show up and caucus tonight, it's a really small sliver of Iowa itself. You know, Both the Democratic and Republican Party are probably expecting somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people to show up and caucus. And this is in a state of, of 3 million people. So it's it's a weird phenomenon where it takes over the whole state. But in the end, you're only relying on a small handful of people, relatively speaking, to, to make a really big decision for the country.
0: And there is snow in the forecast, and not just a little bit, but uh, maybe even a significant amount of snow. Could that uh, have an impact on voter turnout tonight or caucus turnout?
1: That's something we're all paying attention to. I mean, you have a particular phenomenon where, where two of the candidates who are surging, Donald Trump on the Republican side and Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, are really relying on, on people who typically aren't part of the political process, who may be caucusing for the first time, who may be registering to vote in the Republican or Democratic Party for the first time. So we've all been thinking all along, if turnout is higher than normal. Both of those candidates are probably going to have a good night. And uh, snow throws a real wild card into that mix. Uh, The forecast has been downgraded a little bit from earlier in the week, and Iowans are hardy. But still, uh, you know, when you're thinking about driving out to a a caucus site at at 7 o'clock at night, if it's icy and snowy on the road, you might think, what,
0: yeah, I think that many of us think of Iowans as being hardy. So a little bit of snow shouldn't bother them. You know, I think we have to do this whenever we talk about the Iowa caucuses. Explain how the process works, because it's much different than many other states, including Pennsylvania.
1: Absolutely. This is essentially a really big straw poll when it comes down to it. Caucuses are put on by the party. It's not a state-sanctioned election. Um, and uh, both the Democratic and, and Republican Party run them a little differently. On the Republican side, you're basically just casting your ballot on slips of paper. So you show up to your precinct site, you sign in, um, and you hear from uh, each campaign can have somebody get a speech at the precinct site. You know, So I'm here supporting Jeff Bush. Here's why I support him. Here's why I hope you vote for him, too. And then they, they hand out the slips of paper, and they vote. The Democratic side is a lot more complex. You're literally standing up for your candidate. Uh, it's the same thing happens happens up, up top. You get there. Everybody gives speeches for the candidate. But then it's like, okay, all the Hillary Clinton supporters gather in this corner of the room, and all the Bernie Sanders supporters gather in that corner of the room, and Martin O'Malley over here. And the wrinkle is that uh, if a candidate doesn't have the support of at least 15% of the people on site at a the precinct, they're not considered viable, and those people have to pick a different candidate. So... Looking at the polls, it's a big question of whether O'Malley will get that 15 percent threshold in most places. And you're going to see a scramble of, of Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters, you know, making their arguments to those O'Malley people saying, here's why you should come stand with us. instead."
0: So if O'Malley doesn't reach that 15 percent threshold, there is a possibility that his supporters could uh, could determine the outcome.
1: That's right. And you look at the latest uh, Iowa poll that the Des Moines Register does, and that's really the gold standard of polling in Iowa, it has, uh, this is all within the margin of error, but it has Hillary Clinton up over Bernie Sanders by about three percentage points, and Martin O'Malley supporters at about three percentage points. So so these people could really uh, hold the difference here, and that's why both the Clinton and Sanders campaign have really trained their precinct captains so hard on how to do this. Both of these campaigns have actually uh, developed uh, apps for their precinct captains to consult tonight, uh, to look at, okay, here's some pointers on making a case to an O'Malley supporter. You know, here's what you need to know about the caucus process. So that'll be something that'll be really interesting to watch.
0: Now, you're from New Jersey, Scott. You worked for WITF here in Pennsylvania, and then you also uh, worked the state house beat in California. How is Iowa different?
1: I think uh, this is really the first time for me that I've seen this caucus uh, <laughs> process up close, and and it's just really uh, it's really unique. I mean, of course, there are other caucus states itself, but the idea of just uh, people, you know, gathering in a school or gathering in a church and sitting around with their neighbors and having kind of a conversation and and voting for the president, I think is is kind of a cool thing. For one of the stories I did uh, for NPR uh, in December, I went out to a caucus training site, you know, about an hour west of Des Moines in in a rural town and just sat around with these uh, people who are volunteering on the Republican side to run the caucus and, and just Sitting there with them, watching them kind of walk through this, how they're going to do it and how much time they put into it was, was really kind of interesting, And especially in an election where there's been so many conversations about anger and, and pessimism. It felt like kind of a, a little uplifting thing to watch this play out up close.
0: But is there anger? Is there pessimism?
1: Oh, I think without question. If you look at the polls, if you talk to voters um, on, on in both parties who are showing up to these rallies, they're really frustrated whether it was national security or whether it's, it's with the economy, even though we've continued to add jobs. A lot of people still feel like we never climbed out of the hole of the recession. They feel like their, their wages haven't gone up. So I think you've seen a lot of frustration on all sides, and that seems to be kind of a prevailing feeling as people make up their minds about who to support.
0: How much time did you spend in Iowa?
1: I ended up making a little less than I planned because the, uh, the blizzard last week kept me flying out for a final trip. But um, I, uh, I was there for a week earlier, uh, or late last month, rather, and I made a couple other trips as well. So I ended up being there, made three different trips uh, over the last few months.
0: Did you get a sense from the voters if there was one line from candidates, one issue that stood out?
1: You know, I think um, it's what I was talking about before on the the Democratic side. It's really about the economy. And then I feel like on the the Republican side, the economy is a big factor. But, you know, especially since the Paris terror attacks uh, and, you know, the kind of increasing presence of ISIS around the world, that's something you hear a lot about from the candidates and, and from people that you're talking to.
0: Now, what we hear about Iowa is that it's overwhelmingly white and evangelicals make up a big portion of the voting block, at least on the Republican side. Did you see that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, the, the demographics are what they are. I think uh, some of my colleagues uh, on, the, on the politics team have taken a close look at the demographics of Iowa, at the demographics of, of New Hampshire, and kind of asked the question of, you know, is it really right that these states are voting first, and and if not these states, which would be a more representative state? And if you kind of look at it, it, it what state has the— uh, Actually, I'll ask you to guess. Um, what state do you think, in terms of demographics, in terms of education, in terms of you know urban settings and, and suburban and rural? Would you want to guess what state is most representative of the country?
0: See, I, I would go with someone like Massachusetts.
1: So it's um, actually Pennsylvania was really close and was a contender for like which state could be. Uh, idealistically first, but um, the population skew's older, so that's what kind of knocked Pennsylvania out. Um, But uh, they decided that that Illinois would actually make the most sense if you were looking at it just from that level.
0: Yeah, Illinois often is compared to uh, Pennsylvania because we are very similar in in that way. But, you know, you bring up a good point. Uh, I mean, Iowa, they take pride. Iowans take pride in being first in the country and having Mm -hmm. all these candidates flocking to Iowa for a year or so courting voters. So, Mm -hmm. you know, who's to say— you know, who goes first. But what it does do is it makes Iowa important. But I go back to 2012. Rick Santorum won the Republican uh, Iowa primary or excuse me, caucus. And, uh, you know, we saw how that turned out. He was out of the race before uh, the, the nomination even even occurred. So how important is Iowa?
1: I think it's pretty important because both Iowa and New Hampshire really narrow down the field. You're right the the people in both states uh, are proud of the fact that they take the time to listen to all these people, decide who's worth hearing from and who isn't. And uh, I think, you know, by this time tomorrow, we're going to have fewer candidates in the race. And this time next Wednesday, we'll have far fewer candidates in the race. And that kind of helps the rest of the country focus. Um, you know, Rick Santorum didn't, uh, didn't become the Republican nominee, but he was the last man standing aside from Mitt Romney. And uh, that's something that he certainly would have been happy to uh, to accept. And you looked at how low he was in the polls until just about a week before the caucuses.
0: Do you believe that uh, there will be fewer candidates after the results are announced tonight?
1: I think so. I mean, I think especially in the Republican side, the field is so large. So many candidates like Santorum, again this time, have put all their chips in, uh, in Iowa that I think if they don't do well, they certainly have to reevaluate that, especially looking at, at – at the financial reports that came out yesterday looking at, you know, Rick Santorum, I think, has something like less than $50,000 in the bank right now for a presidential campaign. That's not that much. And
0: in Iowa and in New Hampshire as well. Uh, not just winning is important, but having a strong second or third place finish uh, also seems to make uh, you know a candidate look like they continue to be a viable candidate. I understand that one of the things that's occurring in Iowa right now is uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are sniping at one another, and that would seem to be for second or third place. How important is a candidate, uh, a candidate's finish in Iowa, even if they don't win?
1: I, I think um, the the one of the many different cliches that we hear right now is that there are three tickets out of Iowa. That's something a lot of people like to say. I think Cruz and Rubio are in different uh, positions. Where Ted Cruz has really banked on winning this, uh, he's really courted the evangelical vote, the real um, more conservative wing of the party, and uh, he. He's kind of, you know, his campaign is, has been positioning itself, saying that they're in a place to win. The Rubio campaign has not said they're trying to win, and it seems like they're kind of drafted behind and looking to, to have a strong third-place finish and then make their case in New Hampshire. But for Cruz, at the moment, it's all about Iowa.
0: So, Scott, you're on your way to New Hampshire, where you'll be following Jeb Bush. What should we look for in New Hampshire?
1: Well, uh, you know, we were just talking about how Ted Cruz is making a play as a conservative candidate in Iowa. I think a a good way to think about Iowa and New Hampshire is almost like, uh, you know, brackets in the NCAA tournament, where the Iowa bracket, if you will, is kind of the more um, conservative end of the party, typically the more evangelical-friendly candidate, you know, the Rick Santorans, the Mike Huckabees of the world. And then the New Hampshire bracket is kind of the – the establishment candidates area. Uh, the establishment candidates don't seem to be too popular in either party right now, but um, I think it's really telling which candidates are going to be in New Hampshire tonight for the results and which ones are going to be in Iowa. And in New Hampshire, you've got Jeb Bush, where I'll be tonight, but also John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, and Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey. All three of these guys are making a run to be the, the uh the Republican establishment candidate, the more moderate, friendly candidate. You know, Marco Rubio's in that lane as well. So it's going to be a different dynamic in New Hampshire for sure. Jeb Bush is hoping it's going to be a better dynamic in New Hampshire because he's got about 3% of the polls right now going into tonight's caucus.
0: NPR, Scott Detrow, thank you very much for joining us and have fun in New Hampshire.
1: Thanks. Anytime, Scott. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional, I'm Scott Lamar. February is National Dental Health Month, National Children's Dental Health Month. I sh- should add that children's part because it's a very important part of it. Decisions made about your kid's teeth now could have lifelong consequences. So parents should be thinking about uh, what the, the, what they should do with their children's teeth or do about or with their children's teeth and gums right after their children are born. But there are other dental health practices to follow as you grow up, too. On today's program, we'll discuss Children's Dental Health answer questions and they don't have to be just about the kids either. Coming up later in the program, as you heard, uh, we'll be talking with uh, NPR Scott Detrow. Uh, Joining us on the program this morning is Philip Garopoulos, who is president of Catholic Health Initiatives, CHI St. Joseph Children's Health, and Laura Myers, a dental hygienist. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having us.
2: Yes, great to be here.
0: Well, I just mentioned to you it's a big difference. I'm glad that you're scheduled uh, today rather than last month because uh, conditions were a little bit different last Monday, but uh, much, much better today, and a good time to uh, learn about dental health on today's program. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1 800 729 7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, National
3: Children's Dental Health Month. Why do we need a month to bring attention to the issue? I think it's a, it's a huge issue many people don't understand or, or realize. I know when I grew up, you kind of went to the dentist eventually. It wasn't a high priority. Uh, you certainly weren't having pediatricians talking to you about having your uh, toddler as soon as they get their first tooth come in. So we've made some big advances in terms of how we approach it, and we've recognized the impact it can have on children's general health and their self-esteem throughout their entire life. So if you have poor oral health in the beginning, you're going to have pain. You have issues in paying attention in school. You have a problem with your smile. It makes you self-conscious. It leads to other issues as well for children.
0: You know, and that is something that even as a, uh, an observer, I've noticed that in the last few years, and not just talking about children, but especially children, but all age groups, that uh, we are seeing a stronger correlation between dental health and just general health overall.
3: Yeah, I think that's something that has been understated for a number of years. The the connection between the mouth and the body, we seem to kind of disconnect it. So when we talk about insurances, there's health insurance and then there's dental insurance. We have to recognize that the mouth is part of the body and it it all plays together and interacts with each other. Mm -hmm. Has there been,
0: and maybe I should turn this question around and ask, is there now more emphasis on children's dental health?
3: I think the, the emphasis has been growing stronger because we've started to recognize that correlation between other health conditions and poor oral health. So you are seeing now uh, a great push among the dental community, but also now within the pediatrician community to really talk to parents about you need to be getting your child to the dentist earlier than what you used to think. So now you are talking uh, a couple of months after the first tooth erupts, you should really be seeing a dentist making that appointment. Um, when Before, like I said, when I grew up, you you never really thought about it.
0: Well, and you think about it too with diet, that you know now, today we, we we're more health conscious of uh, we're more conscious of what we eat, and that includes a lot of the foods that can cause a problem with with your teeth as well sugars and, you know, some others as well. We also see the correlation between, there have been a number of uh, studies between dental health and heart health even, that uh, people who have, it, Laura, maybe you can talk about that a little bit too, because this, I think when those that research first came out, it was like, okay, what does dental health have to do with, with the heart?
2: There are a lot of things that we look at when our body has an infection or an inflammation in it, such as in our mouth. If we have gingivitis or if we have periodontal disease, our bodies are making certain inflammatory factors because just of that that can affect other organs in our body, such as the heart. So if we have inflammation going in our mouth, it can make inflammatory factors in our heart because we can have problems later on down the line with possibly coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, things like that. Plus, it also affects patients who suffer from diabetes. If you have a consistent infection or inflammation in your mouth, the insulin levels in your body are harder to control, and you may see blood sugar levels going up and down all the time, and they do have a difficult time um, staying healthy.
0: One of the reasons that uh, we wanted to have the two of you on today is not just uh, to answer questions about children's dental health, but the opening of uh, the CHI, St. Joseph Children's Health uh, Center in Columbia, Lancaster County. Phil, tell us about it. You are the, the president of, uh, of the facility Uh, Tell us why this is important.
3: Sure. Uh, In 2004, our organization uh, began our work in children's health and uh, recognized that children's oral health was probably the biggest gap in services that were available in Lancaster County. Uh, They estimated now uh, and and back then that we continue to estimate around 19,000 kids in Lancaster have never even seen a dentist. That many? It it, it actually probably could be higher than that. That really is an estimate based upon some national numbers. Uh, And part of it was around access to care. It wasn't so much that... Uh, they couldn't get into a dentist because the dental level of dental care in the community, it's high, but it's not high enough to meet the demand. Some of it was around access because they didn't have insurance um, or had Medicaid or CHIP, uh, which it's harder for a dentist in the private sector to be able to work with. So we've been providing a mobile dental program uh, since 2004 called Brush Brush Smile, which has gone to each of the school districts in Lancaster County providing dental care there. So cleanings, uh, restorative work right on site at the schools. And the goal for that program was always to get kids into the dentist for the first time, give them a positive dental experience, get them back to the kind of break-even point where there's no decay in their mouth, no issues to deal with, and then be able to find them a dental home in the community. That was the goal in 2004. What we found and what what I found when I I got there about two years ago was that we haven't been successful in that last step, we weren't being able to find them dental homes, again, partially because the capacity in the community and the need weren't lining up. The need was so much greater than what the capacity was. So we began the process of building um, our first fixed site. So this dental center in Columbia, CHI, St. Joseph Children's Health Dental Center, is our first fixed site facility uh, and our way of trying to bridge that gap between that capacity in the community and the need and filling that with our services. When did you open? We opened January 4th, and I would say that we have been Fully booked every day since then. So it kind of is kind of reflecting what we thought was the need, and and patients are actually coming from all around in the community, uh, not just in the borough of Columbia. We have a good percentage from the Columbia borough itself but people have been coming from Ephrata, from other parts of the county as well. Well, and I would assume also,
0: uh, since Columbia is right there in the river, that uh, you have people coming from your county as well.
3: We have had people reach out. It's one of the things that we had to debate internally. As a Lancaster-focused organization, what did we mean by the Lancaster community? And we decided that it didn't mean the county borders, that we needed to be serving all of those people who come through and and to the community uh, and access our doors. Now, who are these kids? I mean, are
0: these the children that have never been to a dentist, or, Are are there kids there who maybe have been to the dentist, but maybe not as often as uh, what you'd like?
3: It's kind of a combination. So some have been referred from our mobile program already. They were seen on on our our buses out at the schools, uh, and there was additional needs that we needed to address in a more controlled um, setting, so not on wheels. Um, Then there are others who um, maybe have never been to a dentist, saw the center opening. There's been a lot of excitement in the borough of Columbia about the center coming, uh, and walked in and scheduled an appointment immediately. We've also had families come in, and actually I was there the first day we were open, and a mom walked in whose son had CHIP, and their dentist that they had traditionally been going to had stopped accepting CHIP, so she wasn't sure what to do or where to go. Children's Health Insurance. The Children's Health Insurance Program. So she came in our door, and her son was actually, I think, returning to college later that week, and we were able to squeeze him in so he could stay on track and keep his, his standard of care going. So how old was he?
2: He was 18. I actually was the, uh, the lady who was able to see him, and it was really fun to have an adult in there, too. So <laughs> it's great to see all ages in there.
3: I mean, is there any kind of age cutoff? Or? We see zero to 18, roughly. Um, our, our terminology for when we go to the schools is that we'll see through high school graduation. So in, in this case, we were happy to see this, um, this individual who came in uh, and, and help, like I said, make sure. Our goal is to help people understand what good oral health is and then make sure that they have the ability and the resources to maintain that. So it was great to be able to make sure that he could stay consistent, even though the challenge is there with his insurance right now. What about those who don't have insurance? We have a a wonderful program um, through our our system um, that we call the St. Joseph Access Plan, and and we're actually very blessed to be able to have some resources um, in our agency that we can extend a sliding fee program to people who have uh, no insurance, and it actually is a very generous program. It allows someone who earns up to 300% of the federal poverty level to have a discount of up to 50% on charge and as kind of goes higher as you earn less money as a household. So people who are earning even 200% of the federal poverty level, so as an individual, uh, which most of these kids aren't individuals, but as an individual, if you were earning around twenty-two dollars to $23,000 a year, you'd be able to uh, access services at no charge through the discount program by providing proof of income.
0: Yeah, if you had a five-year-old walk in without an appointment, when, without an adult, that probably wouldn't It'd, be a good thing. A slight problem. <laughs> There'd be, There'd be a, other issues there we'd have to deal with. And I doubt you'd have too many five-year-olds saying, yeah, I want to go to the dentist. You know,
3: <laughs> yeah. right off the bat. I, uh, I don't know. I think they'd like to come to see, see us. us. Yeah, yeah. They <laughs> would. Huh? You don't hand out lollipops, though, I guarantee.
2: No, but we do have prizes at the end of the
3: visit. <laughs> and that's what I think I think it's been neat, too, is we've seen a couple of patients who came in very hesitant. So I know Laura told me about a case where a grandmother had brought their grandchild with them, and they were very hesitant to come to the dentist. And by the time they left, they loved Dr. Kira, our dentist, and are excited to come back for their visit. So it's kind of neat to see that. See,
0: you do bring up a point, though, what you said earlier about people who maybe are hesitant to go to the dentist or those who uh, have had, uh, uh, not had a, a good experience. There is that aspect of dental health as well, that uh, uh, there may be parents who, with their two-year-old, say, well, you know, I know that uh, they you know, they, they need some care, but at the same time, I don't want to see little Johnny or little Betty. I don't know where I came up with little Betty. <laughs> Those that's are too good many. ones. Yeah, they are. <laughs> that, that, that's about like going back to the 50s, though. Um, you, you know, I don't want to see them in pain or, or having uh, a, a problem. So is that a, an issue that you have to deal with as
2: well? Many times parents who have a history of maybe having a negative experience themselves will reflect that onto their child unintentionally. Uh, So our goal is to not only educate the child. Like People say, well, why do you bring your your baby in when they just have their first tooth? It's only a tooth and they're only one. Well, it's not just for the child. It's for the the parent as well. We are educating the family. And that's a really important aspect of uh, access to care, too, is bringing some light to the parent to say, hey, we're here for your children, but you know what? Here's what you need to do as well.
3: I think what also people fail to realize is just because they're baby teeth and, and we lose them and you get your adult they're gone. teeth. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it doesn't mean they don't play an important role. So they play an important role in being able to eat properly. So you can eat those healthy fruits and vegetables that crunch um, so that you can speak properly. And they also serve as placeholders for your adult teeth. So if you're losing your... Uh, baby teeth to extractions or falling out uh, before they're supposed to fall out, um, you are potentially causing larger problems down the road for your adult teeth.
0: Let's talk about that, Laura. Mm-hmm. W- why are baby teeth so important? Why mm-hmm. is it so important that uh, maybe kids that, uh, now Phil used the word uh, e- erupting, uh, the, the the first tooth erupting, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> I'm picturing a volcano, but uh, and sometimes it could be like that, but uh, why is it so important?
2: When, uh, as Phil had explained, not only in the importance for speech and for chewing and for daily function, uh, when those baby teeth come in, it also, like he said, it serves a place for the tooth that is to replace it, their permanent tooth. Many times, the permanent teeth on the very back, the baby molars, they aren't replaced until the ages of 10 to 12. So if we remove a baby tooth early because it hadn't had uh, the proper brushing, flossing, and attention that it needs, what happens is as the six-year molars, which is the first set of permanent molars after a child's gotten their baby teeth, the six-year molars will start to fall forward into that empty spot. They just start to migrate that way. And what happens is, is then we have a permanent tooth that's still trying to form under the gums. It has nowhere to come out. So we look at orthodontic problems later on down the line and possibly the loss of more permanent teeth, which we don't want to see happen happen
0: you know you see so many kids today with braces and you know part of it is cosmetic we know Mm -hmm. Um, part of it is that they're much more affordable and insurance plans uh, take care of them but I was picturing just what you were describing that in the past, very often when uh, a child, a family hasn't uh, taken care of the teeth, that, that that's the result of it is that that's what happens when you say orthodontic care later.
2: Exactly, and we've there's been a, a change in the way that we eat as a society as well. There have been studies done that our softer diet, uh, we start babies out on baby food and all the soft things. And when we talk about not having that chewing action and the proper motion of teeth that are supposed to be doing, um, we see a change in the way that the mouth forms. So what happens is, over time, um, we have developed as a human being um, a propensity to have teeth that aren't in the right place because we're not using them properly.
0: Mm. Uh, when, you know, I'm going to go all the way back here. <laughs> uh, when is uh, the, the, the first time that uh, a child should go to the dentist?
2: We tell patients and parents uh, as much as we can to educate is that a child should be seen by the time that they have their first tooth or by around their first birthday. Uh, so that's really, and some, well, there are some children who don't have a tooth by their first birthday, so they're thinking, why should you be coming in? Well, there's still education to be done. You should be cleaning their gums after they f- eat. There's, so there's things that we need to get children used to as far as even having an exam. So it's really important all the way around.
0: Mm. Uh, you know, and, and you mentioned, and I did too, about uh, gums. It almost, and again, I keep mentioning these changes, but uh, we have made so many changes, uh, uh, so many advances in the last 20 or 30 years, but uh, gums are almost always mentioned with teeth when we're talking about dental health.
2: Absolutely. They are the structures that hold your teeth into place along with lots of different fibers and bone and things like that. So if we don't take care of our gums and we end up with gingivitis or bleeding gums, which can lead to periodontitis, which is a loss of bone around the teeth, your teeth don't have support that they need to stay in your mouth so you can have them till you're 102, whatever you need. So I always tell the kids in my chairs, if you brush your teeth and you floss your teeth every day, you can have teeth that chew with... Until you're 102, or you know, that all the other people maybe they won't be chewing with their teeth and they can't have steak and they can't have the fun stuff that you like to eat.
0: Do you actually tell kids they could live to 102? I do. <laughs> <laughs> do they quite understand
2: that? <laughs> well, not really, but I, you know, I have high hopes. <laughs>
0: well, hey, talk about advances. People are getting older or this living is true. longer. This is true. Uh, what should you use to clean a baby's first tooth?
2: What we normally tell par- parents is that there are there are little tiny toothbrushes out there that you can use for a an infant. But there's also you can simply even just put a wet washcloth over your finger and wipe your baby's teeth off with that. You can do that with the gums. Um, there they make little finger cot toothbrushes out there. But we don't always uh, expect you to start using a fluoridated toothpaste until they're a little bit older. So there are some baby toothpaste out there that. Don't have fluoride in them. Um, that just kind of help get the, the the brushing action going for the children. Why? Why no fluoride? Um, <clears throat> because we don't want to have uh, the child swallow all of the toothpaste the, with fluoride in it. Because then they could, if they are in a fluoridated area where water is uh, mm-hmm. water already fluoridated, they could get too much fluoride. So with with until a child's really able to spit or to be monitored while they brush their own teeth, we. M- Limit the amount of toothpaste that we put on brushes. You mean consciously spit? Consciously spit, yeah, not 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 not, you know just because
0: want to. (laughs) You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. February is National Children's Dental Health Month and during this February and yes, it is the 1st of February if uh, you have to remember to turn that calendar page. Our guest today, Philip Garopoulos, who is president of Catholic Health Initiatives, CHI, St. Joseph Children's Health Facility, just opened in Columbia, Lancaster County, and Laura Myers, a dental hygienist. We will answer your dental health questions. And it doesn't just have to be about children. Give us a call 1-800-729-7532 Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org you also can leave a question or comment on witf's facebook page again that phone number is 1-800-729-7532 Uh, For more on dental health plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Changing, or excuse me, Transforming Health online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and WellSpan Health. And I am going to ask a lot of questions having to do with uh, children's dental health and, um, well, even even some adult questions as well because uh, many of the same issues that uh, children may have Adults could have as well if they're uh, not visiting the dentist as often as uh, maybe what they should. And when I say what they should, what's a good, uh, uh, is there a a difference between how often a child should visit the dentist and
3: what an adult should? The standard of care is that you should be seen every six months uh, for an exam and a a cleaning uh, just to get kind of caught up. And they start that from from early on. So I know with my daughter in particular, she's she's a, a pediatric dentist and she's going every six months. And we're going to be starting our our youngest as well because she's had her first tooth erupt, so she'll be going. But it's that standard kind of six months that you want them in. Uh, As far as how someone's considered to be in care or not care, it's it's kind of like other things where how you track it is different depending upon who you go to. Uh, But that's that goal is every six months.
0: You mentioned pediatric dentist. What's the difference between a pediatric dentist and a family dentist?
3: It's really their scope of, of practice and their area of expertise. So just like a pediatrician um, would, in theory, have the knowledge to be able to treat adults as well, they have specialized in the in the conditions that children have. So you have the same in dentistry, um, where you have some people that they work exclusively with children. So they're seeing more of that. Um, and so they have that expertise and additional training there.
2: You may see pediatric dentists seeing more of your special needs groups, um, maybe children who are who are autistic or have Down syndrome that maybe have a little bit more difficult time um, going to a family dentist, and you know they they have just special needs that a pediatric dentist is uh, trained in.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. I was, in this I'm trying to picture this. I remember my own children go. My daughter loved going to the mm-hmm. dentist. I don't know what she was thinking, but uh, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm joking with you, of course. My son, he avoided it all. So every kid is is different. Um, what When you're dealing with younger people under the age of 18, what are you thinking? How are you different, not only with special needs, but uh, how are you treating them a little bit differently than you would an adult patient?
2: Um, I have a, a, an, a, for instance, on the dental bus, my... Um, my coworker Mary and I, when we work with children, the the uh, the program coordinator on our bus says, "Well, I know when they're young because your hot your the tone of your voice gets really high." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it's it's making a connection with the child. Looking at their medical history, did mom or dad say anything about uh, a video they like to play or or what are they interested in? What are their hobbies are? But it's it's really connecting with that child. And if there is a fear, is being and being very uh, understanding and trying to find out what is it w- that you're afraid of and can I show you that this is going to be very simple and easy
0: what about for pain what about uh, when a procedure you have to do you have to drill or something okay. like that because uh, most often adults will get a shot of Novocaine with mm-hmm. a, with a needle what about a child?
2: Absolutely the same thing actually. We we call them sleepy drops. So we'll do the same procedures that we would do with an adult. We normally do have children close their eyes. So, you know, just so that they're comfortable and they're not anticipating a lot. So no, same thing. We and then if there are children who are having a very, very difficult time with getting treatments such as fillings and so forth, we do have options such as nitrous oxide, uh, which is laughing gas, right, most people right, know that. Right. And then we can go so far as also doing sedations in office. That will be uh, where a child is actually sleeping, sometimes a conscious sedation is done, where we give them an oral medication, and they are just drowsy, but they're breathing on their own. There may be times when there's an IV sedation done, where you're actually breathing for the child. Most of the time, those though are done in a hospital setting.
0: Wait, only kids close their eyes when the needles are coming?
2: <laughs> well, we don't close our eyes. I do. <laughs> well, you can close <laughs> yes, your eyes if you like. <laughs> I mean,
0: I'm not afraid of needles or anything, but I guess <laughs> it's so time to close the eyes. Well. I don't want to I don't want to see that going on. <laughs> I don't know. That's, maybe that's, I should do a little survey here. That's all right. I
2: turn my head when I get my butt work done. I don't look
0: either. <laughs> see, that doesn't bother me either, so I'm, I'm okay there. Um, what about a child who has a toothache? What should uh, a parent do with a child who has a toothache?
2: We really like to see a child pretty quickly when there's a toothache because – it can lead to issues that are greater than what they may be. When a, an adult has a toothache, we're like, oh, okay, we'll take some Tylenol or some Advil. Normally, when a child has a toothache, it could possibly be further along than what you really think it is. So, one, contact a dentist if you have a dentist, um, a family dentist. If you don't, then I would suggest we'd love to hear if it's a child. We'd love to hear from them in in our clinic, um, so they can get a hold of us at um, the our 800 number, which is 844-836-8871, um, we would be more than happy to see a child who's having pain. If it's a point where the child is, it has facial swelling and things like that, it's and you can't get a hold of someone, unfortunately, we have to use um, emergency room services or urgent care services so that they can at least get the child started on some antibiotics if necessary and get the proper referral done. But again, we are very, very glad to see children who are having a uh, an emergency type of situation. If we can get them in, we're going to get them in.
0: And Very often, a a toothache, when it's reached that point, that's an intense kind of pain for a child.
2: It is. Um, They may have said a time or two before that, oh, my tooth hurts, and it just, they didn't, mom will look in there and say, I don't see anything. Well, you can't always see in between teeth, where decay usually does start. So you want to make sure that, pay attention to those little things. If your child says they have a toothache, it could really be a toothache.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call if you have a dental health question or send an email to SmartTalk at witf.org all right I'm thinking about uh, children and uh, pacifiers and thumb sucking uh, you know the, the old wives tale and I th- think it's a wives tale that uh, if a child sucked their thumb uh, well your teeth it was going to have an impact on your teeth pacifiers never really heard it that much but w- what about uh, those two things
2: It depends on how long that uh, the thumb sucking and the pacifier uh, use goes. They both will change the the way the teeth come in. Um, Thumbs are harder to take away than pacifiers. Uh, I've seen pacifiers used up to the age of five in some cases, and it takes a little bit of deprogramming. Normally, I'll say, don't you think that maybe you need to mail your pacifier off to the babies? And there might be a baby that could use that, use that pacifier. But um, it, it can cause a change in the way the teeth erupt. Really? Yes.
3: What about... Uh, well, I think one thing with, with pacifiers, and, and I had to, my mother-in-law brought this up because she, she was talking about it. I have, I have an infant at home. And she's like, oh, well, if the pacifier drops on the ground, shouldn't you just rinse it off in your mouth? please do not. (laughs) Um, I mean, decay caused in your mouth is caused by uh, an infection um, that the babies don't have in their mouth until it gets placed there. And one of the ways you can very easily place it there is by you putting their pacifier in your mouth and then putting it there because we tend to have that uh, infection already in our mouth to some extent as adults. So there's a lot of things that people do with pacifiers that can increase their likelihood of decay, including dipping it into their juice Uh, to try to get them to take it. Uh, Those types of things can be really, in terms of, dangerous to the kid's teeth as they're coming in, and that's where you start to see some major decay issues um, from overuse of of bottles and pacifiers that have been, in in essence, dipped in sugar and then put in the kid's mouth.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, many times a pacifier is used to... keep a, a baby from crying mm-hmm. or you know calm them down a little bit and uh, there will be parents who will sometimes do those things to make as you said to make them take it but uh, yeah not a good idea to dip them in juice or and you know that brings up another point um when a, a baby has a bottle most of the time they have formula they may have milk what about the juices uh, especially the ones with sugar
2: We prefer that the only thing that should be in a bottle is water or the formula or milk um, up until the point that they are ready to go into a sippy cup. Um, A baby should never be put to bed with a bottle with anything other than water in it. Juices and milks, they lay on the gums and the teeth overnight, and that's when a lot of things that can happen. If those teeth weren't clean, if there was plaque on them, and then we give them all these, give the, the germs all these extra things to eat, such as the sugars from the milk and the juices, we're going to cause decay. Even with milk. Even with milk, milk is milk is a sugar when mm-hmm. it's broken down.
0: What about formula?
2: Formula, same thing. I mean, there's still calories and everything. So f- anything other than water should uh, for a baby to go to bed with. And really, to be honest with you, you probably shouldn't be putting your baby to bed with a bottle. True.
0: Yeah. Uh, how do you know? We talked earlier about fluoride and uh, controlling that at the, at the age in which it starts. But uh, once a child has graduated above that age, how do you know when they're getting enough fluoride?
2: That's been quite a long debate in many uh, communities. Um, We find that if the water system is not fluoridated uh, in in your area or you have well water, um, you need to talk to your pediatrician, doctor, or family dentist about the proper dosage because the dosage changes with age. We don't start it until about six months of age, and it can expand all the way up to the age of 16.
0: Uh, dental X-rays. Mm-hmm. Now, there are uh, a lot of people, adults, who uh, you know prefer not to get. Uh, they they like to limit the amount of radiation that they're mm-hmm. exposed to, and uh, and that includes uh, dental X-rays. What about with children?
2: With children, um, we work with the American Dental Association guidelines for taking radiographs, x-rays on patients. Normally for a child who has a healthy mouth, they normally have their bite-wing x-rays. People usually know those. They're in the back of your mouth between your molars. Um, We normally do those once a year for children. Um, If they're at higher risk, it could be a maybe every six months. Now, the advances in uh, radiography or x-rays is great now. We do digital radiography. Almost everyone, I can't say all, but almost everyone's using digital radiography now because the exposure um, is very, very minimal with the scatter radiation. In fact, we have handheld um, x-ray machines that we actually stand right next to the patient and take the x-ray right there.
0: Rather than rather, having to do the whole thing in the mouth, hold the thing back in the back of the mouth. No,
2: rather it. than the, the practitioner themselves, the person who's taking the x-ray, moving out of the room to take right. the x-ray, you can stand right there and radiate it.
0: With the, and our listeners can't see this, but I'm making a motion my chest <laughs> where you know you put the the shield on, uh, they put the over top of you to keep down your exposure to, to radiation.
2: Exactly. We want to cover the thyroid gland and the abdominal area, the chest area. Um, and and it's a very, very important practice to follow.
0: Preventing tooth decay, it's, it's much wiser to prevent rather than have to deal with it afterwards. What is a good idea for and even children of any age, maybe even adults, best ways to prevent decay?
2: Wow. Best ways to prevent decay is make sure you are brushing your teeth twice a day with a fluoridated toothpaste. And there are so many brands out on the market, I'm sure you can find a flavor or a type that you really like. Um, so brushing for twice a day for two minutes, and that may may not seem like a lot of time, but when you're doing it, you'll find out you can be very thorough in two minutes. Flossing your teeth once a day to make sure that you're removing any plaque um, in between the teeth and underneath the gums to keep things healthy. And seeing your dentist twice a year.
0: Okay, flossing for kids. When should that start?
2: As soon as two teeth have are touching. And that's usually the two front teeth on the bottom. Really? Yes.
0: So you can have a two-year-old flossing
2: absolutely in fact many times we see decay uh, at that age between two and three if not sooner
0: Mm. um one of the things that we have to think about with children and these are kids that are starting to get up i shouldn't say that because nowadays it's four and five playing sports Mm. um how do you protect your child's teeth if they're playing sports
3: we were actually just talking about that in the in the green room. I really, guess. <laughs> um, the
0: green room that's not green. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah,
3: So we were uh, we were actually talking about the importance of mouth guards, uh, and I think you're starting to see that with more and more sports. Sports you didn't used to think about. So I mean, I played football growing up. You wore a mouth guard because, right. of course, there's other other issues also at play. But now you're starting to see it in soccer and field hockey, younger and younger, and because of the fact that you could have. Uh, an impact to your mouth. it's It's a good idea. Uh, so it's good to see uh, basketball stars like LeBron James starting to wear our mouth guards um, because there is a real danger to their teeth and also to their head in general uh, during sports that that can help uh, prevent concussions and also damage to your teeth.
0: what well, you say it can help with uh, preventing concussions, in what way?
3: Uh, well, it actually stops some of the jolting of your um, your head. Uh, which can um, reduce the likelihood of, of a concussion. I and mean, the main reason I think that they started wearing them in football was because you're having a lot of uh, jolting of your head as you get hit around, uh, and keeping that kind of kept you from kind of, one, biting your tongue or causing other damage, but also that jarring effect of your teeth hitting each other by that impact, um, it, it being braced by that mouth guard.
0: So is it a good idea for, I mentioned we have four- and five-year-olds playing t-ball, uh, soccer. Uh, other sports as well, maybe even lacrosse. Uh, Is it a good idea for children that young to get mouth guards?
2: If you can get them to wear it, I think it's a great thing. Um, It's a matter of fitting the size. And normally there are a lot of what we call the boil and bites out there where you go to the sports store and you look at the size. So you need to get the proper size and make sure that it's fitted well for the child. And uh, I think once you get them trained on wearing a a sports guard, they're going to do it for life for their sports uh, teams that they Playing on. In
3: many right. ways, it's sort of like seatbelts. Like if we start younger and you start right. talking about it, then it becomes commonplace. So it will be less likely that they're going to be resistant to it when they get to high school. And sometimes when you're starting to get that impacts that are higher intensity.
0: And you know, you mentioned LeBron James. Uh, unfortunately, uh, often it takes like a professional athlete or someone like that to wear them I and that mm-hmm. a kid will say, oh, I want to be like LeBron. I'm going to wear the, the mouth guard. And they're also making them with artwork on them yeah. so that uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe kids will uh, look at that and say, oh, well, I want that, too. Um, but if a, a child and it doesn't have to be just doing sports, it could be, be, happen uh you know climbing trees falling down the steps uh, things that kids get into Uh, what if a child does lose a permanent tooth
2: we do our very best to try to salvage the permanent tooth. If the tooth comes out of the mouth wholly, like the, the root and everything's out and they're holding it in their hand, um, there's two ways that we try to salvage that tooth. Is One, try to put the tooth back in the mouth, but if they're young, they might swallow it. Um, another way you could do that is to put it in some milk. That's always been kind of a, a little... Uh, mother's rule of thumb, you know, put it in some milk and then get to your dentist as soon as possible. Sometimes those teeth can't be salvaged. So what we do is we work on ways to create um, a tooth that can replace that temporarily until they're old enough to maybe have what's called a dental implant placed there. But there are little tricks of the trade that we can do to make sure that aesthetically they feel comfortable.
0: You touched on this earlier, but when do permanent teeth start to come in?
2: Usually around the age of five. um, We'll start to see the bottom two center teeth in the front. They'll start to get loose, and they'll start to get those teeth. Or we'll start to see the eruption of what we call the the first permanent molars or the six-year molars, and don't let that number fool you. That can be anywhere from age five to age seven or eight. Every child is different in the eruption pattern of their permanent teeth.
0: Mm. Uh, We only have a minute or so left. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you both for being with us today. What kind of information, advice would you like to leave for our audience uh, uh, about, not just children's dental health, but dental health overall?
3: I think it's important for people to understand the impact that dental care can have on their overall experience, their overall health, self-esteem, well-being, and the role that it can play. And the way that we can do it is by making sure we educate our children. So many times, like you had mentioned before, you kind of pass along your phobias to your children, and it prevents them from getting their appropriate care. And that's part of where we're meant to be that resource. So whether you're asking us for dental care or not, we're there for advice. We're there to be able to support you, provide education um, through our various programs that we offer, and we're happy to have people reach out um, through our website or, or through our 800 number.
0: Your website is what?
3: Our, our main website is CHI saint joseph children's Health.org. Uh You can also find the dental center, which is a lot easier to find, at org. It's a lot easier to remember. Uh, Or you can just call us directly, and you can ask questions. There's a staff like Laura available, as well as community educators uh, that can talk to you if you call 844-836-8871.
0: I want to thank both of you very much, Phil Garopolis, President of Catholic Health Initiatives (CHI) Saint Joseph Children's Health, and Laura Myers, a dental hygienist. Thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us. And
0: I also want to make you assure that uh, I told you that our first segment today with uh, Scott Detrow talking about the Iowa caucuses uh, is part of WITF's uh, support from Saul Ewing, the Harrisburg law firm of Saul Ewing LLC.